I know it's like a funny thing historically speaking, you know, where you're just like you remember like the uh, the you know the greatest generation of being like these guys were 18 and they stormed no, you know Normandy yeah. Beach and it's like look at Lee a, Marvin was only 17. Yeah, dude, Audie Murphy was fucking 12 or whatever, <laughs> lied about his age, you know. But like I look at my students and you know again it's just history and everything changes, but it's just funny like being like yeah wow. Well, there were no child labor laws when those guys grew up. That's you know? true. My grandpa was working in a factory and smoking cigarettes when he was eight years old. Yeah. You know, but. Wow. That'll that'll make a man out of you. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He will have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Well, tell you the truth, this guy's starting to get on my nerves. <laughs> you want to crown him? Then crown your ass. But they are who we thought they were. And we let them on the side. That's hot out there. That's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, friends. Welcome to The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Eric Marsh, and with me, as always, are... Ryan Saunders. And... Andrew Stasiulis. The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of the hosts selects a theme for the week and the other two hosts pick movies in response to that theme. And we come on here, and as we like to say, we run the gauntlet. Very appropriate for the movies we have (laughs) this week. It's episode 84, and I asked the boys to bring me my Arizona dreams. To bring me that great state and bring it to the pod in movie form. And they certainly did that. Didn't disappoint. We we got a lot of Arizona and a little bit of Nevada on this episode this week. Uh, and this really all started because, uh, number one, I watched Don Siegel's Edge of Eternity, which is a fun little murder mystery set at the Grand Canyon. But then uh, I booked my plane tickets to Arizona, going out there in a little while to visit some friends, and I'm very excited. So I wanted to get into the Arizona mindset. And of course, uh, Arizona, one of the great cinematic states of all time. I mean, uh, the Westerns alone could uh, fill a telephone book, you know? The old Tucson Studios. Oh my God. And, you know, it's just a very rich, vibrant setting for a movie, obviously. And we've we've had some on the pod. We had uh, one of the great Phoenix movies, Waiting to Exhale. Yes. Got the urban look at uh, Arizona. I believe Ryan also recommended O.C. and Stiggs at one point, uh, which is another classic uh, of that. But yeah, you know, especially it's a great place for Westerns and action movies. So let's, uh, let's get to them. Ryan, you had the earlier film why don't you bring it on forward wagons ho (laughs) absolutely yeah i was really excited when you announced the theme because i do as well love arizona i think i've passed through arizona four or five times at one point staying there for about six weeks at the height of the pandemic looking and treating it sort of as an outpost of sorts uh, but at that point after like being there for two weeks Arizona turned into the worst place in the world uh, on a per capita level to stay during the pandemic because of the the amount of cases that were cropping up at that point but I do love the state I think it's beautiful and I do particularly love 
depictions of Arizona on screen. I mean, one of the reasons it's so great for action films especially, but all sorts, is because, I mean, it's just such a diverse landscape. I think there's six different biomes in Arizona, so the variety of the types of terrain you can depict on screen if you're shooting in Arizona is really helpful because a lot of films are shot in California, obviously, because you can get a little bit of everything depending on what you're looking for within you know driving distance of L.A., but people forget that you can also sort of do that with Arizona. You can find a lot of different things, especially within like a three-hour radius of driving. Pretty much the only thing missing is the ocean, which is the, what edges out California, I think, historically speaking. Right. Absolutely. So it's funny then that the film I picked uh, is set pretty much entirely in one location in Arizona, if you want to treat like this huge area as you know a single location. It's pretty limited in its focus, but it was one of the very first films that popped into my head when you pitched the topic, primarily because, Marsh, I knew you hadn't seen it. And being such a fan of Westerns, you know, I thought I, I couldn't resist. So I brought the 1956 film The Last Wagon, a cinemascope Western directed by Delmer Daves and shot in the beautiful Sedona landscape of Arizona. Um, Sedona is, you know, like maybe an hour and a half, two hours north of Phoenix. It's a stunning area now, you know, completely overrun by, by tourists, basically. It's very funny watching The Last Wagon and especially some of the set pieces such as like a, a young boy falling down a rushing river is really just like a little slide that, you know, you see kids in their like, you know, swimsuits and their uh, inflated, what are those called? Why am I forgetting the... Water wings? Water wings, yeah, children in water wings just like sliding down today. It's like a very safe and pleasant little spot for families to sit, but it's given such dramatic weight in the last wagon. But it's, you know, overrun by tourists because it's an exceptionally beautiful area. It is like the quintessential red rocks of Arizona. And that's where the drama unfolds on this giant cinemascope canvas. Uh, throughout the duration of The Last Wagon. And I will note, you know, one of the other reasons I, you know, was leaning towards The Last Wagon is, no spoilers, I knew what Andy was picking. Uh, and, you know, it's from one of the the great thorny filmmakers of all time, and I had remembered The Last Wagon itself being a pretty thorny experience, all things considered. One that actually pricked me a little more this time around than it did the first time I saw it, so I'm excited to dive into some of those elements. So to sort of just give a brief overview of what the film is and why it is, you know, rather thorny, the film is set in 1873, in the Arizona Territory, Arizona, not yet a state at this point in American history. And it tells the story of Comanche Todd, a white man whose family died when he was a young boy and he was raised by a Comanche tribe. It, this man is played by Richard Widmark, who really gets a lot of opportunities to showcase his physical prowess throughout the film. Um, he looks particularly funny in the warped cinemascope image, especially in close-up. A man who already has a rather wide head uh, looks like he's like even more squished whenever the camera is like pushed up against Richard Woodmark's face. But Comanche Todd is on the run because he has just killed three white men. And the sheriff that eventually captures Comanche Todd in the beginning of the film comes across a wagon train of good Christians, you know, passing through the Arizona territory, notably without a military escort. One night, 
while a group of youngsters, uh, a part of this Christian wagon train, go out to like a swimming hole, uh, the place I had mentioned that now today, you know, you can't go without seeing like millions of kids splishing and splashing. While they're away, the wagon train is attacked by a band of Apaches, leaving only Comanche Todd alive at the bottom of, of a ravine strapped to a wagon wheel. They set him free and thus begins a long form escort mission through the Apache Canyon of Death, a terrain that only Comanche Todd knows how to direct everybody through. Now, the reason I mentioned that the film is sore thorny, I mean, there should be some obvious signs that, you know, we've got Richard Widmark playing a white man named Comanche Todd, but it is a pretty interesting artifact from 1956. This is coming off the heels of Broken Arrow, another Delmer Daves Western that was shot in Sedona, and another film that was more self-consciously a liberal Western, one that was trying to be more actively progressive in its depiction and sympathies towards the indigenous peoples of the United States. This film is a bit more clumsy in its attempt to try and, you know, talk about native issues and present it as something that's, you know, noble and trying to add a lot of passionate weight to it. I think the film, like, stumbles over its toes a couple times and has some really wild digressions um, as it relates to that. But, you know, it is a film that has just God-level scope cinematography. It does seem as though Delmer Daves is even more interested in just watching Richard Woodmark catch bunnies and go hunting and just like general surviving stuff in the West in 1873. And on that level, I think it's, it's really enjoyable. So I'm excited to talk about it. That is The Last Wagon from 1956. Thank you very much, Ryan. Andy, why don't you tell us about the wild ride you took us on? Well, in um, full disclosure, <clears throat> this was not my original pick. I actually was all ready to go. I had one that I thought would be a lot of fun to discuss. And then it suddenly popped into my head that this film, the film that I ultimately chose, was partially, mostly sort of set in Arizona and certainly has a very memorable conclusion in the city of Phoenix. And when I did, when it did occur to me, this was indeed the case, uh, I told Ryan I, I was really struggling to pick anything other than that, uh, particularly because savvy listeners of our podcast would connect it uh, to our opening, our intro every week, and in fact, our namesake. So with fully bearing the lead, I should probably just bring it out. And that film is 1977's The Gauntlet. Directed by, <laughs> <laughs> directed by Clint Eastwood and starring him as well. Um, I should point out, you know, for our listeners who, who might be wondering that or have been wondering that about our podcast, you know, it's called The Gauntlet. It's featured on our cover art. Uh, sound bites are included again in our opening each week. Um, I should stress, and I, 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 I think I'm speaking on behalf of the, the full gang here. Uh, this isn't our favorite movie of all time, folks, but it is certainly a banger. And it comes from uh, a, a, f a presence in cinema that, that does mean a lot to us. And, and there's a little bit more to why we chose the title. And maybe we'll get into some of that, that uh, today when we discuss the film. But 
I think it's a it's a it's a fun film. I think it's an interesting film, and um, it was really great to revisit it with everybody this week. So, for those who haven't seen The Gauntlet, the movie that is not the podcast. This film stars Clint Eastwood as Phoenix Detective Ben Shockley. Uh, and as the film opens, he is presented to us as a bit of a bit of a downtrodden soul. Uh, I think the 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 great opening sequence is him literally stumbling out of a bar at dawn and driving directly to his police station to get his uh, important or throwaway assignment from D.A. Blakelock. And that is that Shockley has been instructed to escort a nothing witness uh, who's currently in jail in Las Vegas to a nothing trial that's taking place in Phoenix. Uh, really should only take a few hours to jump on a plane, pick up this witness, Gus Malley, and, and bring him back to Phoenix. So uh, the first sort of monkey in the wrench, I guess you could say, is that when Shockley arrives to Las Vegas to pick up Gus Malley, he of course discovers that Gus is not a man, but in fact, Augustina Malley, played by Sandra Locke, the one-time uh, paramour of Clint Eastwood. And they uh, have a much... Um, storied and problematic relationship in real life, and we'll see a bit of that play out on the screen as well. But once he picks up Gus, um, she informs him that basically this is a suicide mission. She doesn't want to leave the jail because she knows something that he doesn't, which is that this isn't a nothing trial, and she isn't simply a nothing witness. So much to uh, her sort of resistance and, and desperate reluctance, he drags her out of jail to go back to Phoenix, and almost immediately out of the uh, jail in which Gus has been held, uh, they are getting beset upon by uh, gunmen from all points, including... Uh, seemingly every cop in Las Vegas and eventually Arizona, forcing them both to literally and figuratively run the gauntlet on their way back to Phoenix. Uh, I think this is a really interesting movie for Clint Eastwood as the director and star. Uh, this film comes after a lot of successes he has had up to this point in playing very sort of badass and and um, authoritative police officers and cowboys and outlaws. But here, Eastwood's doing something a little bit different with his persona. You know, this is still coming after, I think, two or three Dirty Harry films by this point. And we should point out that Ben Shockley is no Dirty Harry Callahan. Oh, no, sir. So I think it's a, it's a sort of like interesting way of him kind of presenting uh, a, a sort of uh, different side of himself, not necessarily as the 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 gun the guns blazing badass who knows how to handle every situation in fact he's he's sort of out of his element for 
almost the entirety of this movie. But it's also, you know, it's it's got action in it. It's got adventure in it. It's got a little bit of romantic comedy in it. It's sort of a, a road film. Um, it's, it's, it's a movie that kind of hits a lot of uh, buttons for me and for us. And yeah, I think it's... Uh, it was the perfect film to bring at this point. If not now, when the gauntlet, <laughs> you know? So, so that's the film that I brought, 1977's The Gauntlet. Thank you very much, Andy. And yeah, what can I say? You guys, uh, you guys know how to make me happy, you know. <laughs> really quickly, it's funny, Andy, that you just said, "If not now, then when?" Because I'll never forget one of the most memorable experiences I ever had in Arizona was when I was on a hike climbing a mountain, sun scorched, feeling like I was gonna die, and I had like took a knee. I was taking a break, taking a big sip of water, and this Polish guy showed up like seemingly out from behind the bushes and ran up to me and said, if not now, then when? If not you, then who? And then like had me get up and keep going. (laughs) And I think about that all the time when I'm on a hike at like that guy's motivation, you know, like beat the sun, you'll be okay, just keep going. So I always attribute that with Arizona. So yes, if not now, then when? Certainly the Polish know a lot about perseverance. You know, (laughs) you guys explored some of that recently as well. (laughs) Yes, we did. (laughs) Oh, yes. Well, I mean, I guess, you know, we can start with the obvious that we've already uh, sort of brought out into the open, which is that, you know, these films are, of course, linked not just by their Arizona setting, but by their uh, conceptual structure, which includes, you know, uh, running, <laughs> running the gauntlet, right? So both films are about traversing this hostile Arizona landscape, and it's not just the nature that's hostile either it's the people as well right because they are both films about people who are yeah sort of besieged or set upon at every turn uh in the last wagon of course by the apache and in the gauntlet by the police and the mob and and anyone with a gun in the the (laughs) tri-state area um so you know that's obviously an interesting connection and i think you know, more broadly, it's, it is interesting that both films, as Ryan was like sort of alluding to, I think The Last Wagon is dealing with, you know, the integration of the 1950s. And I think The Gauntlet, whether Clint knows it or not, is dealing with like second wave feminism, right? And especially what you were alluding to, Andy, in that it's like a different look for Eastwood. Ben Shockley is, yeah, he's a total fuck up. Uh, he's not Dirty Harry. He's not even Coogan. And no. we should point out, <laughs> yeah, that this film itself is kind of like a reworking of Coogan's bluff, you know, in its, uh, he's out of his element, you know, just as Coogan is is lost in New York City. Here in this scenario, he's he's just as lost, you know? And it's really Sandra Locke who is, the hero of the movie uh, in an interesting way. Mm -hmm. Clint Eastwood doesn't kill a single person uh, in this film. 
And I think if you look at it like not that, directly, not well, yeah, no, not not directly, and not with a forty-five uh, handgun, you know. So there's there's interesting elements going on there with that, yeah, the sort of like, uh, yeah, mirror image, uh, yeah. dirty hairy fuck up. She shoots know? his gun more than he all does. the time. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, Sandra probably has a higher body count than Clint in She's this movie. She's got a huge body them. count. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But it's true. I mean, I was thinking about how, you know, there's a lot of discussions of shame and being shameless in The Last Wagon. It's sort of a film about the, you know, shameless American soul, right? Because in its depiction of race and race relations and the way that white people especially have internalized that and like kind of, you know, are wearing it on their sleeves. And there's something really interesting about The Gauntlet where Clint has a very typically shameless approach in the way that he's shooting this script. And because of that, because of the you know, him treating, taking everything at face value and bringing his own darkness to it and his classicism, this film ends up being like the closest Clint ever comes to saying all cops are bad. Mm -hmm. You know, it feels at times like one of his more left-leaning films because especially at one point, a sex worker is given a huge portion of the film to deliver an all cops are bad monologue. <laughs> um, I was really particularly struck by that this time around. It was something I had remembered, but it goes on for so long and just lays it all out on the line and clint just presents it as is like unadorned and it's a really stirring moment you know and i feel like the thing i love about clint movies we've talked about it all the time amongst many other things is how he muddies the waters you know it's really hard to pin that guy down mm -hmm. because again he's got this straightforward approach and the gauntlet has forever remained a really complicated Peace in my mind. You know, I think about it a lot because I try to pinpoint what exactly is going on here. But it's true. I think beyond the escort mission, there is something about the way these both of these films internalize America and try and present them for us on screen. For sure. And I think, you know, the the allegorical and sort of abstract poetic uh, elements of the gauntlet make it this like powerful thing. I mean, it's like you know sequence after sequence it's depicting state violence waste of public funds just these guys unloading thousands of rounds of ammunition just on an order which turns out to be you know by some wacko right uh and it really gets at something you know at the in the dark heart of the united states and and particularly just the way they're filmed as this like all pervading violent force that is just showing up wherever and blasting everything to hell. I mean, like you can project whatever you want into those images. I mean, it reminds me of predator, right? When they unload in the jungle, like that has allegorical power, uh, you know, in the, the context of, you know, the United States and, sure. and its use of force internally and abroad. Yes. Uh, and that is, is specifically what was, you know, one of the things that was, was on his mind. I listened to uh, an interview with him, a very sort of brief kind of sound clip where he was talking about the gauntlet and his inspiration for depicting uh, police and police violence in that way. And, and again, it's hard to pin Clint down. What I found so fascinating is that he said uh, a huge 
a huge thing that inspired him was seeing the footage of the, uh, I believe, Los Angeles police shooting of the uh, Symbionese Liberation Army's headquarters, where the police showed up and and set up on that headquarters, and you know thousands of rounds of ammunition were fired, tear gas was fired in there. They burnt the whole building down, and and Clint said, you know, I I saw that, and it seemed, he said, overkill to me, and he was shocked and and troubled by that uh, that the 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 state could do such things and and so he he basically wanted the violence in this and and especially the police violence to almost feel satirical that it is over the top and it's meant to be over the top and it's meant to for those who who witnessed those events and witnessed a lot of other sort of police responses to counterculture and Fred Hampton you know exactly. comes to mind immediately exactly and and you even get uh, again you know you talked about the the sort of like um, Sandra Locke in her kind of um, discussion or her monologue about, you know, being a sex worker and, and what does it mean to actually be normal in America? You know, Clint later in the film, not to get ahead of ourselves, also delivers a, a very like heartfelt monologue about, you know, his, his crushed idealism as, as a police officer and basically similar similar feelings that he has now as this sort of like broken down alcoholic shell of a, you know, a, a police detective, a, a, a justice of the peace. There isn't a lot of peace in this film for anyone involved. Um, and, and yeah, I found that really interesting that the Clint would have those kind of sympathies, especially in relation to the Symbionese Liberation Army and, and Patty Hearst and, and that kind of thing. So so it's 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 there for sure. And I also think it's wild having revisited this film thinking about, you know, Clint pointing fingers at all of the elements of hypocrisy that he sees in the American way of life and I hadn't remembered religion being such a target throughout this film because there are two key moments, one of those being when the police are totally unloading thousands of rounds of ammunition on that home to the point where it completely collapses, its foundation is destroyed, there's a notable sign that said, God gives house calls. Mm -hmm. And later in a moment when another person is just like totally eviscerated, we have the sign that mentions God gives eternal life. And to think that there is this 1970s Clint Eastwood film where he is going against, you know, the state, state run religion, the way that we commit these acts in the name of God and justice and what God and justice actually mean in America, it's its wild. It's still a surprising film, having revisited it all these years later. And it connects to The Last Wagon then in multiple ways because Dave's is also playing with the hypocritic Christian uh, in The Last Wagon as we're introduced to these kindly wagoners, you know, and the, the colonel, the wagon master, and they're saying their prayers. And then uh, they're also just violent and hypocritical when, when it comes down to it. And they're also willing to keep Widmark in chains, you know? They're not interested in in hearing his side of the story, and so there's uh, that element of hypocrisy there as well. And again, I think even perhaps a, 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 an even more direct connection, which would be the, the sheriff who has... Oh, my God. ...who has arrested at the opening 
you know, Comanche Todd and is is completely brutalizing him to the horror and the shock yes. of the kindly Christians. Yes. They think that he's overreaching in his authority. I mean, he is uh, finding every chance he can to, to beat Todd, to starve him, to deprive him of water, to, to, to keep any kind of comfort. <laughs> uh, as he even says, right? Like, my job is to bring him in just alive enough for the hangman and and he means it and in fact the sheriff uh even like turns his violence onto the wagon people very early in the film which i right. found again like incredibly shocking i mean he he punches one of the kids he shoots at a kid who's going to bring him a cup of water i mean he is he's basically made it clear that he will kill any of these people in his mission to to basically torture Todd while bringing him to the hangman's noose. Yeah, talk about a really shocking depiction of the law, <laughs> you know, because of course there's, you know, there's a lot of actual discussions in, especially in the latter half of The Last Wagon about the white man's law in territory where there is no white man's law. But that is what that sheriff is supposed to represent. And here's our depiction of a police officer that is just totally vindictive, a total bully, you know, alive and nothing more. Like I am delivering this man less than an animal. You know, and he's getting a rush from it. Mm -hmm. He's one of the most compelling figures in the film because his obsession over that and the way that he is going against all of those wagoners. I mean, shooting at a child because he is just so <laughs> yeah. stuck on the fact this prisoner deserves no water. I am like so dead set on that. I'm going to put my foot down. I'm going to shoot my gun at a boy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, like, yeah. He is, the, he is the, the, the biggest piece of shit. I mean, he's straight out of the gauntlet. And, and yeah. I think it's <laughs> another little like note because you know, he attaches himself to this wagon. The sheriff does very opportunistically, right? When mm -hmm. he's when he's got Todd. And there's just all these really subtle ways that Dave's depicts him as this just like total fucking parasite and piece of shit. I mean, aside from the the violence, which we've said, I don't know if you noticed this, but like there's a point when the wagoners are like, okay, it's dinner time, and they have their little, you know, ring the bell and they've laid out dinner for everybody. And the fucking sheriff forces his way to the front of the line. He's the the first guy to start like grabbing the shit apple off the basket yeah the <laughs> apple basket yeah he's just loading up his plate with apples and and he doesn't give a fuck about anybody but but basically himself but i think there's also a lot more that is going on in this kind of opening in terms of our that the daves is doing um in a very like interesting way to our allegiance as an audience i mean the film does open with some very shocking violence and and we don't have any context for it really we see Comanche Todd, we see Richard Widmark basically laying an ambush for some guys who are following him. And it, it just opens with some very blunt violence of him shooting one of these men and then, you know, uh, uh, sort of like ambushing another and, and stabbing him brutally. And I don't know if you noticed who he stabs, by the way. A very young... Oh, it's Timothy Carey. A very yeah. young Timothy Carey who basically mm -hmm. doesn't have any lines. His job is to just basically be there, look menacing, and then get stabbed in the gut by, by Comanche. <laughs> she Todd, but but we watch this and we're sort of like, wow, this guy is is an animal. This guy is a violent 
like maniac. And it's good that the sheriff has got him, right? But then we start to see the way the sheriff is treating him. And and for the wagoners, like they are very conflicted because they're seeing only this sheriff's abuse. And and Richard Widmark as Todd is is playing it very cool and and sort of playing the the harmless victim. And we don't really know where to stand, you know. We think, well, he is a bad guy. I saw him kill some some deputies and and fight the sheriff, and it was pretty awful and pretty violent. But now the sheriff is kind of going rough on him, but but there's still this element of lacking faith and lacking trust in in who to to believe and who to follow. And so I think there's a lot of complexities that Dave's is is presenting and and especially for the wagoners, you know, they're they're basically supposed to be us, right? We're supposed to be thrown into this harsh violent place, totally clueless, totally, you know, defenseless and we now have to to figure out very quickly like where to put our our trust and where to put our our sense of uh, concern, I guess, you know, I think it's really, really surprising and, and, and very smart and very savvy. And that even extends to, you know, the group that will ultimately become the sort of like cast of characters in this film. They are uh, a very like divided bunch, you know, each sort of individual character has, uh, you know, their own beliefs, their own angles. Uh, in particular, you know, there's the one, there's the one daughter who is like the personification of racism, you yeah. know, uh, Valinda, Valinda, yeah. the Barbie yeah. doll. Yeah. And, and so her voice, she sounds like a 60 year old smoker. <laughs> that was something I had remembered so vividly from this film was just her as this unrepentant racist. What do you mean by that? You act so clean and, and think so dirty. I dirty? Yes. Like when you say Indian lover and make it sound so filthy. That's exactly the way I want it to sound. It is something filthy. It was something filthy when my father took your mother as his woman. I suppose you think that was clean. A white man and a Navajo squaw sneaking off up some dark wash in the night like a pair of animals. And look what came of it. You. Oh, don't think an education and a white name make up for where you came from. You think I want you for even a half-sister? Well, I don't. You think I'm not ashamed of my father and what he did? Well, I am. I'm sick to my stomach ashamed. And she is such an unbelievably just like unpleasant presence throughout the majority of the film that you only want harm to befall mm -hmm. and i i remember just thinking how striking she was in it because she is she's just one of those people that you hate to hate like she's just so horrible to be around throughout the whole movie and i'm like convinced by that performance it's still like tough to sit with her <laughs> and listen to her speak oh yeah. like, i don't know if it's a good performance or a bad performance but it inspires this this real repulsion in you as a viewer to see this like ugly of the American soul on screen. Yeah, she's like a 50s segregationist. Yeah. I mean, it's like... Yeah, exactly. She's like an aunt from Missouri who posts QAnon shit on Facebook, <laughs> you know? That's what I was thinking this time around, too. I was thinking about Valinda on Facebook while watching this movie. But this is the only film that that actress was in. Uh, so I don't know if that had to do with the, the real darkness that she was getting at with her performance that kind of turned people off from her. Uh, but she's really, she had only been in TV uh, until that moment. And 
Yeah, she's... She, yeah. Yeah, she sucks. Yeah. Yeah. Well, whereas on the other hand, her half-sister is I- indigenous, and she's just, like, really racist to her sister, which is, uh, yeah, these very brutal scenes. But, you know, her sister, Jolie, uh, is played by Susan Coner, who uh, is Mexican, but famously played Sarah Jane in Imitation of Life. Oh, so, yeah. uh, once again, being typecast against her uh, race in classic Hollywood. That's the classic Hollywood way. I mean, Richard Widmark is playing a Comanche. Sit down, folks. You know. <laughs> well, I mean, he's technically white. You know, but yeah, I, I, I couldn't have found a blonder guy. I though, mean, really. Look, you know? <laughs> I told Kyle this already, but I was just walking around the last two days, going like Comanche Todd, and just like laughing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is literally the funniest name in classic Hollywood history, yeah. Comanche Todd. Todd, Come one of the whitest on. names of yeah, all time. Dude. It's so funny. Uh, but anyway, and then there's all these like guys, you know, I can't remember their names, like Clint and Ridge or whatever. Uh, well, yeah, just one of them's Clint. I think that's funny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Just one like, of whom is played by, you know, a uh, legendary weasel, in my opinion, Nick Adams. Yes. Yeah. I think that guy is such a weasel. You guys know about his backstory, right? Like how he kind of got into Hollywood was more or less by claiming that he was, you know, one of the best friends of James Dean. And he, do you know about his, his like sicko, <laughs> the sicko publicity photos he put out at a certain point? So after James Dean died, he went, he like commissioned a photographer and he like went to James Dean's grave and like did this whole like photo shoot, like, like genuflecting by James Dean's grave and being like, I lost my best friend of all time. Yeah. Nick Adams is a real oh like God. opportunist piece of shit. So I, I have again, a visceral reaction whenever I see him on screen because he's just this like scumbag, uh, fame seeker from that era of Hollywood. And, you know, again, appropriately enough, he's kind of playing one of the, the male pieces of shit yeah. in this group who basically wants, he, he seems to kind of like also enjoy watching when like the sheriff is torturing Todd. Like, I think he's the one who says, why don't we just string him up right now? Yeah. Like, let's have a, and, and not even from a sense of justice, but almost as if he would find it like amusing or entertaining. You know, he's got this kind of like psychotic edge of violence simmering underneath him directed towards Todd and the Apache and, and indigenous people in general. Yeah. 100%. Right. And so that's like, you know, that's what Dave's like typically did in his Westerns is like build up these sort of groups of different perspectives and then like play them out in all these scenes, which in this movie obviously is, is funny because it's mostly like Richard Widmark being like, look, the Indian way is the best way. I know it sounds kind of foolish to most whites, but uh, Indians don't suffer when somebody gets killed, not like you. You see, uh, Indians believe the brave dead go to the high ground, and that's a good place. Game's never short, winter's never too hard, plenty of water, plenty of grass. You know, and and, it, and it's like, you know, in parts very moving and in parts very embarrassing. Uh, but like, <laughs> yeah. you know, that's the, the consistent thing throughout is this earnest effort by Dave's to put forth human rights. I mean, really, like it, it's just, it's almost embarrassing. And I think that's why like Dave's had been at a certain time sort of like underwritten in film history because He's so fucking earnest. Yeah. And and like that comes across like in but this I, film. But I also think, you know, to to his credit that 
something that I really appreciated about the movie in general was it's, you know, aside from some of those moments of, of, you know, uh, Comanche Todd, you know, telling us longingly about the, the high grounds where all, you know, Native American dead go to, to hunt and, and live out their, their eternity. Uh, there's also this really like unsentimental portrayal of violence and survival in a harsh landscape that that at times almost kind of reminded me of like Cormac McCarthy and Blood Meridian that there's this also yeah. message at play here that it's like okay r- racism nationalism god christianity all this shit doesn't fucking matter because we're going to die out here if we don't find fucking water, if we don't cover our tracks, if we don't move at the right moment, if, if, we, if we fuck around and find out, you know? And, and even with the Apache, you know, yes, they are presented as this, like, terrifying presence. Like, if they show up, we are done for. We're dead, you know? There's, there's the point where he even, like, tells one of the guys, like, save the, the few bullets we have for the women if we get caught, you know? Kind of reminded me of, like, Ulzana's raid. This, this again, very, like, blunt uh, way of saying to people, like, no, this isn't a game, folks. And, and that's really where, like, most of the film, for me... Uh, resonated in that kind of like sh- again like almost shocking at times um, directness of of the violence of of again of just America of life of living in this this landscape. Yeah, I mean, I feel like one of the most effective moments of its unflinching portrayal of of that darkness in America is that initial argument between the unrepentant racist Valinda and her sister who is half indigenous. And it is one of the most, yeah, truly unflinching depictions of venomous racism from the era. At least that is as it lingers in my memory, the way she directs such hatred towards her sister. So much so that when her father grabs Valinda to stop her and he tries to talk her down out of it and she still resists that and just accuses him further of like well you're just this disgusting man who would dare like sleep with a a native woman in america he slaps her across the face because that's like all that's left in that moment of hearing such poison and it is like kind of a striking contrast between later in the film this is getting way ahead of ourselves but you know at one point valinda is bitten by a rattlesnake and then there's a moment where there's a sort of reconciliation between her and her sister because i feel like one of the huge the the biggest misfire in this film that would have like made this thing so edgy and provocative is later when valinda seems like she's dying from this rattlesnake bite comanche todd goes up to her sister jolie and says like hey i think you know i think she might die do you care (laughs) and seeing this again i just so desperately wished jolie said no (laughs) you know and she doesn't right like she and there's still a lot of beauty there and this element of forgiveness where she says like i didn't think i would but i do care but that initial encounter at the beginning of the film when we're introduced to that like hatred with their blood and the i just i find that like when it comes to you know dave's trying to do like a liberal western of sorts in the 50s like that moment really sticks out as being something like very effective and scary it would probably be even more effective if uh, the character wasn't redeemed uh and was just yeah. went on being the biggest piece of shit of all time. However, yes. this is a 
idealistic and romantic movie in in many ways as dave's films often are but like that's it ryan i mean like in, in many points it packs a serious emotional punch whether those are are negative or positive emotions i mean it really runs the gamut and i think what's so powerful about it is the setting even within these sort of like conversations happening the vistas and the rocks and the trees all sort of like elevate that emotion in like the best way in a classic Hollywood way in a deluxe color cinemascope mid 50s Fox way like it's just romanticism at its finest you know it really is there's so many like beautiful shots I mean I think the one that stands out the most in my mind is at a certain point when Comanche Todd is basically laying out the rest of their journey for the survivors of the massacre. He's he's sort of standing on the edge oh, yeah. of a cliff, and it's it's this amazing like long shot, basically almost like an extreme long shot of the the aforementioned Apache Canyon of Death, and he's off on his own, right on the edge, on the edge of this abyss. And and the the like young folk, the the white kids, you know, they're all kind of like huddled off to the side, also looking out. You know, everyone's back is to the camera, and it's 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 achingly beautiful, and yet all he's describing to them are the the terrors that await them, the danger that awaits them, and the unlikelihood of their survival as they prepare to enter that landscape. I mean, it's it's an amazing, amazing shot. There she lies, as far into the west as your eyes can see, and then some canyon of death. The Indians say you can hear cries in the night down there that you'll hear all your life. Usually it's only the wind. Now, if anything happens to me, you just keep due west. It'll be eight or 10 days to water. You live to see it. And I ain't saying any of us will. I am saying it's our only chance. Bertrand Tavernier, uh, you know, sort of knew Dave's uh, back in the day and interviewed him a little bit and said that he went above and beyond you know, sort of the role of a director in classic Hollywood in that if there was a shot to get a long shot that was a second unit shot, he would do it. You know, he would stay up all night to get one shot as the when other directors would just, you know, send a whole team off to do it. And so he was, yeah, personally involved in a shot like that. That's like this poetic moment, this transitional moment, like moving us into the next act. And it's like at sunset and it's like, I mean, it's incredible. And you go like, yeah, that's not second unit. That's the unit shooting that shot, you know? And it shows. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah. It's worth pointing out too, with this sublime photography and these gorgeous shots, just the number of gorgeous shots alone is actually notable for the era. Um, it's kind of funny how I notice on IMDb, you know, how these types of things get quantified. But there is a bit of trivia that mentions the average shot length in this film is 6.7 seconds, which is much shorter 
than the average cinemascope production of its era. This film has a more mobile camera and a larger variety of shots than you would typically find in a cinemascope western from the 50s because it was a little cumbersome at first and they didn't know how to use it and a lot of times it felt restrictive or they had to be locked down when they were shooting a film like this. But Dave's was really like pushing it at the time. And that's why we're treated to such a visual feast of so many different ways of framing different characters with the natural landscape, the way they use trees as arches, the way they have the landscape itself provide all of these different obstacles and set pieces, whether people are, you know, at one point they lift Comanche Todd as he's attached to a wheel. He's still <laughs> shackled to the wheel after the Apache attack. And his his wheel had fallen and he survived. And it's this really great image. He's like, I survived because of these two rocks. He fell perfectly between two rocks that like prevented his chest from slamming into the, the red rock floor. And he's just like hovering there between those two rocks, you know, a few inches above the ground that would have normally been certain death. But it's one of those great side pieces where they attach the rope and, you know, they pull him up by the, the horse. But it's just, it's striking. We see it. We see him in silhouette being dragged up this mountain as he's attached to a wagon wheel. It's, yeah, it's a striking thing to look at, undoubtedly. Guys talking ASL's average shot length. Yeah, David Boardwell yeah, has BB entered the chat. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of, you know, uh, idealism and, and perhaps maybe at times even like, you know, hackneyed or, or misguided idealism, I think, again, the thing that, that we've already alluded to that, that really just hit me so hard this time was the lack of idealism or the crushing of idealism at every opportunity in the gauntlet. I mean, every cop we've mentioned, you know, like their violence, but it's like when you really reflect on it, every cop that we're introduced to in this film is uh, a bigot, a buffoon, a clown, a criminal, a, a, a stormtrooper. Yeah. yeah. There are no like just just decent people. I mean, even his partner from the beginning, Hingle. played by, yes, the great Pat Hingle, is like a, 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 an idiot, you know? And and ultimately it will <laughs> be his, his, yeah. his downfall is that he's he's fucking just naive, you know? And and I think, you know, there's this really amazing moment. Again, we've sort of talked about like Sandra Locke's character, but you know, after one of these these police, you know, the barrages that they they survive, you know, they're just trying to sneak away, and and they they're like going through this like construction yard, and Clint Eastwood takes her hand and says, you know, hey, just try to act normal as we walk by these guys, and she says to him, I am normal, implying that perhaps she is the only normal person in this insane place that cops no cop is quote normal <laughs> right who would be a normal cop what is a normal cop well we see it throughout this film and they are bad fucking news at every turn yeah especially when you know the first thing they do as they like make their escape from all the vegas pd that try to blow them away is you know, they hijack this this trooper uh, and he turns out to be yeah, just like the most vile, uh, disgusting man in either of these yeah. movies. Belinda's great grandson. <laughs> yeah, honestly, that. right? How many times a month you split your legs? Just drive the car, will you? 
See, now I got me a chance to learn something, Colonel. I mean, as long as I got a chauffeur at the little strumpet, you don't mind if a country boy picks up a little education, do you? <laughs> I got I got this here buddy. He had the idea one time we'd open up a string of whorehouses and advertise them like them fried chicken places. Finger licking good. <laughs> uh, and and of course he you know he's given a, a stern talking to by by Gus by Sandra Locke. Uh, but right, I mean it's it's a film devoid of yeah anything anything really like positive besides their relationship and i hate to say it again this keeps happening on the pod but we once again have this kind of like screwball comedy structure road trip capra thing going on i mean like this strain in in cinema of course is uh, so prominent we just keep encountering it maybe it's just the kind of movies we select about like assassins and shit but like well it's also got that great bronson jill ireland flavor too yes. of a couple just actively role-playing on screen being really at odds with each other and getting a rush from it you know i mean this is this is from an era when clint and sandra were on you know very good terms and that excitement and chemistry is felt throughout every scene with the two of through them every punch <laughs> through every punch <laughs> it's matched as well by the the gorgeous landscapes that are they're traversing and going through all these chases with and you know it, it it was funny when i was reading about the shooting locations of the gauntlet i was a little bummed when i found out um there was actually far less in arizona than i had thought because in my memory you know they cross the border pretty early, which they do. The majority of this film takes place in Arizona, but it turns out a great deal of it was actually shot in Nevada, and particularly the sequence at the cave and the long motorcycle and helicopter chase, that's all shot at Lake Mead Recreation Area in Nevada. However, I was like kind of like scoping, and I was trying to see when does the film shift to Arizona? When does production move uh, across the state, right? Because I had to think about the practicality of Clint, you know, getting as much as he could in Nevada while they had to get the Vegas stuff. But then, of course, they had a ton of stuff in Phoenix and they had to shoot the bus there. They had to show where they'd get picked up on the bus. I knew that was Arizona. And it does seem through a bit of research that it shifts uh, when they end up on a train car at one moment. Because I noticed I saw some saguaros and I thought, okay, that's got to be Arizona. You know, those, those are notable for only really existing in Southern Arizona. And I came across multiple websites that are these forums for train buffs. And there were all these threads <laughs> of, you know, people saying, hey, I, was, I caught this movie on TV last night. I'm not sure what it's called, but it's Clint Eastwood doing this. And I think that it's like this particular line in Arizona. And it's all these guys that like are debating as to where where those particular train lines are and how they were like swapping out different types of train cars standing in for others. Um, but yes, it does seem, according to these guys, that the uh, the magma train line out of superior arizona that is like so that's when the film really does shift into to the actual arizona territory wow now the train guys have entered the chat dude. this is getting <laughs> <laughs> this is getting out of hand but for what it's worth you know the, the the nevada stuff the las vegas photography in and around vegas area um it, it stands just as tall as you know 
the sublime Arizona landscape. I think it fits the purpose very well. Yeah, you know what though? I too, I, I'm glad you sort of brought that up as well because you know we we are all very well versed with Clint Eastwood's long career of of kind of you know at times. Uh, almost attempting to demystify depictions of America and that whole Vegas sequence. I, I really admire this time around for him just making it just very dingy and ugly. It's not glamorous. You know, Vegas isn't presented in this film as this like, wow, you know, the, this oasis in the desert filled with glitz and glamor and, and, and casinos. And, you know, I don't even think we really get a shot of the strip at all. I mean, he's all business there. You know, he basically just goes to the jail and he goes to some sort of like shitty bar slash OTB parlor that is just filled with the kinds of like gross, you know, Americans that, that Clint will, will continue to showcase throughout his career. I mean, the, 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 the road trip that they go on, you know, aside from, I think basically that, that moment you mentioned where they are kind of like hiding in this cave area, uh, in a, apparently Nevada, uh, <laughs> you know, he doesn't really try to depict you know, these sort of like kind of sweeping landscapes you get in Dave's. It's a lot more of like, you know, uh, motel rooms and, and, and a lot of, of just, you know, sitting in the backseat of a, of a fucking car or, or, you know, uh, finding yourself, uh, just on these kind of like empty, gross roads, these forgotten back roads of, of the desert. I mean, it's, uh, it's a a very very you know like brown and and <laughs> washed out film. I totally agree. I feel like I was really taken by that this time too. Them driving into Vegas, our introduction. He's in the car with a cab driver who is starting to give him you know a whole rundown of the strip, and Clint immediately says, "Spare me the tourist crap, buddy." Yeah, you know he's like, "I'm not here for any of this." And it is funny that yeah, I didn't think about it that way, but the last wagon, obviously referencing American Western art, having a visual style that is very reminiscent of like classic Western paintings. And this film and its depiction of the bars, it's not American kitsch. This is Clint trying to depict what he thinks America looks like. And I've often found that with his films, that they, you know, people probably falsely attributed him as being this guy that's obsessed with Americana. And sure, maybe he is, but not in a kitschy way. When he's talking to people in those bars, it seems like he's talking to real Americans. Mm-hmm. And there's a good bit, you know, that runs throughout the movie where the mobsters have put a, a betting line on whether or not she's going to actually get to the trial. And so there's this, you know, seedy sort of like gambling, you know, comedic element that's kind of like running throughout. Yeah, he's constantly checking the odds and they, they are just increasing, increasing, increasing throughout the film. Yeah. I think it opened, he said, at one point at 20 to 1. And by the time he's ready to 100 leave. 100 to 1. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, it's getting pretty dire for Mally no show yeah yeah and really like if you put it that way then I think too like you know Clint in this film is more interested in these 
spaces not as like yeah landscape paintings but but action paintings like it's a space mm-hmm. for him to uh be projected through physically and and look cool and you know have these guys like missing a hundred sniper shots like it's fucking rennie harlan uh the you long know, kiss good night something interesting uh i heard ben mankowitz say i watched uh <laughs> i watched uh uh an intro that he did at some point on tcm that was on the internet where he was you know i think it was like summer under the stars and they were doing clint so uh they were showing the gauntlet and, and he did his you know brief little intro and and something that he said which almost seemed like a sort of throwaway line uh, I, I then really like just lasered in on and I, I couldn't get it out of my head. But Ben Mankiewicz said, you know, this is kind of Clint Eastwood's Buster Keaton film where he's like, you know, paying homage to, to various like elements of, of Buster Keaton's action comedy. And again, when you think about the fact that even Clint from his own mindset, you know, he was saying, I was trying to make things over the top. I was trying to make the violence at times satirical. I mean, that that really started to to just control my way of looking at all these moments you're describing. I mean, he said, oh, the house, you know, when when the first big, you know, barrage of gunfire we're treated to in this is at a certain point when when Clint Eastwood and, and Sandra Locke, when they go to her home and she's changing, but she's also trying to shake him and he calls the cops, you know, he calls his, his DA Blakelock and is like, Hey, everyone in this goddamn town is trying to shoot at me. Can you, can you send some squad cars over here to, to help us out? And Blakelock was like, Oh yeah, absolutely. I'll send some squad cars over. And basically half of the Las Vegas police department shows up and, and with almost no pro- provocation whatsoever, just open fire. We got the house surrounded. Throw out your guns. Bring the girl. Fuck me. Come on, let's go. Come on, goddammit. They've got a whole army out there. You got 30 seconds. Caps are shooting at us. Allie! Open fire! In that great gauntlet sound bite, you know, on the house, and they unload every weapon in that police arsenal <laughs> on this house. And it 7,000 squibs. Yeah, it literally falls apart. The house, uh, it climaxes with the house just absolutely collapsing onto its foundation. And he was like, oh, well, you know, that's like the house in Steamboat Bill Jr. And 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 the motorcycle, I started to think about yeah. that, that motorcycle chase, like young Sherlock, right? And then just if you really take the whole premise of this film, it's basically Buster Keaton's cops. It's It's a guy who is you know, mistaken as this sort of violent criminal who, as the film builds, finds an army of police officers chasing him to the point where it does become so over the top. It's it's surreal. It's ridiculous. And that's exactly what happens in just about every single one of these set pieces. So I, I, I just couldn't get that out of my head. I was like, this is Clint's Buster Keaton movie, you know? But, but of course, the way he's going to play it, which is in a certain respect, like Buster Keaton with the great stone face. I mean, he takes all of this again in his kind of 
classic Clint laconic way. And he's still cool as a cucumber in spite of, of all of this. Shot in the leg with glass stuck in his face, you know, yeah. just like yeah. <laughs> complaining about Sandra Locke. You know? Yeah, he's in the zone, right. dude. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Man, and him complaining about Sandra Locke, you know, and this like broadly, you know, typical Clint half jokingly misogynistic way. There nag, was like nag, a nag. Yeah. Well, that's what I was gonna say. There was a pun that I caught this time around, having been familiar with the film that I I did not notice the first time I saw it, because that is a repeated gag throughout the film, is whenever Sandra Locke is taking him to task, he says, nag, 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 and that ends up being like, you know, a big quote-unquote touching moment at the end when she revives him from near death and he says nag 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 (laughs) but i did think it was kind of funny this time around again in this like stupid way uh and ultimately probably offensive but when when she's being treated as like a horse at the horse races and they're talking about how the odds are increasingly not in the horse's favor and it's like god the, the odds are 60 to 1 and clint asks you know what do you know about this horse and the guy says i don't really know but looks like a real nag mm-hmm. oh yeah got, got him got him a little little plan payoff <laughs> there not, not that clint wrote the script or anything but <laughs> didn't catch that the first time nah, but he made it his own <laughs> that's for sure yes yes yeah i want to bring up One of the funny things I found in doing a little gauntlet research is uh, Pauline Kael's extremely negative and mean-spirited pan of the film. Holy Uh, hell yeah. But it, it, well, I'm just going to share the opening with you because I think it's hilarious and she thinks this is a negative thing and I think this is a positive thing, right? So uh, she wrote... In the 30s, Monogram in Republic made westerns that had lackluster casts and no believability and no connection with art. There was just one thing to keep the predominantly male audience interested. The viewers could follow a moving object, a man on a horse in the great outdoors. The Gauntlet, directed by Clint Eastwood. (laughs) Like, that is a sick burn, but I'm also like, yeah, that is actually one of the great pleasures of this film is the action and the cars and the motorcycles being projected through Arizona, Las Vegas, Nevada, you know? That is there, you know? In Kerr's capsule review, he refers to the the Ophulsian camera movements of this movie. I mean, and I think that's like... Clint is also at his like most stylish here in, in a certain respect, so. you know? And I know in an interview, he expressed regret about some of the sort of, quote, like, poetic license he took in the making of this film. Because even though it was a big hit, it was not as big of a hit as his, like, previous five movies. So he sort of saw this as, like, oh, I can learn from this. Like, what not to do. I, w- I was a little out there with this <laughs> one, you know? And, like, out there for Clint is just, like, yeah, like a, a stylish action movie, you yeah. know? Uh, but it, but for him, it is, you know? And I think there's just, yeah, there's so much going on visually. Uh, it's, it's just a feast, you know? I agree. It is really surprising because this film... You know, looking at the poster, remembering what it's about. And it's just one of those ones that seems like it should be a typical Clint film that you'd catch on cable, you know, like a more straightforward picture from the 70s. But it's still, I thought this the first time and I thought it again. This is definitely one of his more self consciously arty 
films. Yes. Yeah. You know, he's playing a lot with the compositions, the way the cutting works, how everything's interacting with each other. It felt a lot more planned than a lot of his films do that have the straightforward off the cuff sort of visual style to them. Yeah, I think I think if if, you know, Unforgiven was his like, you know, self-conscious reflection on his career as a cowboy, the gauntlet is his, you know, in his career, I guess a relatively early reflection on what made him such a huge star as depicting police officers, you know, like mm-hmm. this is him on a certain level kind of tearing down a lot of what built him up in portraying cops and in cop films and in, I think, denying certain audience expectations. I mean, as we mentioned, I mean, he is, he is more or less useless throughout this entire movie. I mean, Sandra Locke is the one that is basically keeping them alive more, more than he is. I mean, everything she tells him to watch out for comes to fruition. And he is constantly like learning throughout the film. Like, Oh shit, maybe she's right. Oh, maybe I have no fucking clue what's going on. I mean, this is only a few years after dirty Harry where, where he was the only, only guy who understood what was going on in the world. The only cop that knew what it took to get the job done. And here he is. He's the only guy seemingly that is totally unaware of what is happening throughout. I mean, he calls Blake Lock multiple times to be like, hey, man, that, you won't believe what just happened. Can you help me? <laughs> and then it only gets worse, you know? Everyone, right. the audience, from the first fucking phone call to Blake Lock, we're like, this guy, he's, he's the fucking bad guy. Yeah. But, but Clint is the dumbest motherfucker in this movie. And I think he he wants us ultimately to see that, to know that. And that's one of the funniest ways that these two films interact with each other and kind of contradict each other because Clint is, you know, supposedly the one that's leading Sandra Locke to Phoenix. He's the one taking charge of the escort mission and getting her there. But Sandra Locke really is the Comanche Todd of the gauntlet. She's the one that's actually assessing the situation, calling it out as she sees it, and has actual survival instincts that Clint does not. Clint is more similar to the Clint in the last wagon. <laughs> yeah. The guy who very stupidly, you know, they only have five rounds of ammunition and he wastes three of them killing the rattlesnake that is no longer a threat yeah. that had bitten Valinda <laughs> and then signaling to all of the Apaches in the area exactly where they are in the Apache death camp. What, dude, 100%. I mean, Sandra Locke clocks him fucking immediately in this. When he shows up at the jail reeking of Jack Daniels, she's like, Terrific. My life on the line and they send me an on-the-ropes bum. I'm dead. Look what they said. Like, <laughs> <laughs> look what they said. And he, like, he fights throughout the film against that perception you know like there's that point where she's like why the fuck do you think they sent you because you're a fucking drunken bum and he's like no they sent me because i get the job done and it's like no you haven't gotten anything done the very first shots of the film are you stumbling out of a bar to the police station and and like a, a an empty bottle of jack falling out of your fucking car and breaking on the on the sidewalk i mean like he he is totally clueless of that there's so many great 
great lines where she just eviscerates him. Cheap shot, gutless bastard. You really get off roughing up girls, don't you, big man? Big 45 caliber fruit. That's me. Macho mentality. You're gonna get us both killed before we get out of here. What does she say at some point? Oh yeah, you're a faded number on a rusty badge. I love that line. And it's it's perfect, right? I mean, that's what he is. He is the babe in the woods that her street marts, street smarts are 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 going to like save like she gets his ass to Phoenix. And you know it's not just street smarts because uh, as she points out she uh, is actually college educated, you know, and and as well as of course being yeah, a high class uh sex worker for the mob and other people in in Las Vegas. And it sounds like, you know, this film was panned critically uh, and, and derided for, for many years, I guess mostly on the grounds of realism, uh, which we've uh, you know already discussed in terms of the violence and the, the comedic violence and allegorical violence of this movie, which is brilliant, you idiots. Yeah. Um, it seems like one of the <laughs> other problems is like, this is like part of like Kale's, you know, pan is like, what's, what's with this character? She's swearing, but she has a college degree. And I'm like, yeah, what? You know, like, okay, you know, shit like that, where you're just like... (laughs) Pauline, you press. Yeah, I don't know. It seems like people, yeah, just like... To me, it sounds like they couldn't accept... uh, you know, an obvious contradiction that could clearly exist in someone's life. You know, again, like, like she says, I'm normal. Yes, no one else in the film is fucking normal but her. Yeah, and then yeah, so people didn't people didn't see that uh, in that portrayal. But again, I think that's something Clint even said at the time. He said she's equal to me in this film, and I would argue she's greater than him in this film. But in terms of screen time, importance, backstory, like. It's her. It's her show, you know? And that's all part of the the design, of, of Clint's Keaton-esque design here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as, as Comanche Todd at one point uh, disparagingly refers to Valinda, she says, Gal's kind of quick-sprung, ain't she? <laughs> and um, Sandra Locke certainly is in this movie. I mean, her performance is off the charts. She's wild. I love how she describes, you know, at one point when she really pisses off Clint in that cave... She says, like, hey, I counterpunch. So if you can't take it, like, get out of the ring. Yeah. You know? This is also, of course, after she kicks him in the fucking balls at a certain point. Yeah. And just before the weird, like, Corman-esque turn the film takes with when this the biker whole, show yeah, the whole yeah. like, biker gang saga that takes up a chunk of the film. Now the next turkey who tries that, I'm going to shoot him, stuff him, and stick an apple in his ass. Any takers? You, 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 you. Hey, man, you can't do this without a warrant. Man says I need a warrant, huh? Well, a man don't know jack shit. Now, anybody here know more about the law here than me? Any lawyers here? Any lawyers want to tell me why I don't need a warrant? Hey, man, why don't you get off our case? You with the fucking hair. You look smart. Why don't you tell me why I'm entitled to come in here anytime I please? 
a real Nevada biker gang. Yeah, yeah, I could tell, you know. Um, <laughs> the noblemen, I think, their jackets said or something like that. Yeah, uh, I, I, I hate to just like pull a radical shift here, but we haven't really mentioned this aspect of The Last Wagon, and I got to bring it up, which is, you know, we've we've outlined some of the characters and their journey, but... <laughs> I know where you're going with but this. The, the, the character <laughs> that I found the most alarming and troubling throughout the film was, was Billy. Billy. <laughs> Billy's yeah. journey is is like it, it haunts me. I mean, yeah, I was waiting for Billy to get brought into the conversation. This dude that looks like Toby Maguire and is just openly in love with Comanche Todd in this like totally obsessive way throughout the whole. Yeah, run. Well, okay. So the like, kid is tossing out like red flags, like he's a soccer referee. I mean, it's it's <laughs> it's very troubling. So Comanche Todd's main allies in this, uh, you know, this uh, journey they're all going on are Jenny uh, and Billy. And Jenny is a very sort of like typical uh, Dave's, you know, female character who's who's smart and strong and, and is going to teach uh, Comanche Todd a, a thing or two about about love and other things, you know, just as he's going to teach her a little bit as well. But then there's Billy. Yeah, Billy. Her son. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he is he is like, whew, man, he 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 just troubled me throughout the film, you know? Like there's this strange exchange he has early on with Comanche Todd where he asks him about heaven and he he did, did you remember yeah. that? He asked him if he's going to be in heaven with Comanche Todd yeah, so they can go he'd, scouting. He'd love to be in heaven with Comanche Todd. I was like, this kid is just, I'm telling red flags like everywhere. Like the kids the kids at risk, you know? <laughs> and he is like really enjoying the danger that they're in, you know? And poor Comanche Todd is often trying to shake him and be like, well, Billy, you know, it's it's pretty dangerous out here, you know? But Billy is just, he wants to to play. I mean, Billy is on a, a collision course with the high hunting grounds that, that Comanche Todd was discussing. Yeah, this time around, I was sort of reading Billy as that classic white person who idolizes Native American culture and then finding that outlet through Comanche Todd because it's filtered through a white person. So he was more comfortable like openly expressing the ways that he <laughs> wants to celebrate Native American culture. I mean, literally by saying, I can't wait to scout with you in heaven. You know, <laughs> like this cosmic Deranged. idea. Oh yeah, God. it is really cursed. Yeah. I also love there was like a moment like after the massacre, you know, when, as you mentioned, like Comanche Todd is like pinned under this wheel at the bottom of this, you know, canyon or whatever. And, and Billy climbs down and Billy's reaction to him about it. He's just like, that's pretty terrible up there. I mean, it is like the most matter of fact. There's like people strung up in the <laughs> a trees. Lot of people yeah. strung up, burning corpses, you know, and that's all he says. It's pretty terrible, you know, and and at yeah. the same time, again, I found like that that he was like activated by it. Like Billy was like, now it's on. Like now I, I'll let you out, but you're gonna have to, you know. You're be gonna, my dad. Yeah, be my dad. <laughs> be my cool dad now. Yeah, prepare me for heaven, Comanche Todd. I mean, <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck, dude? I felt bad for Comanche Todd. I mean, I, I felt his, his... Like, there are moments where Widmark, in his portrayal, I think, like, smartly is kind of, like, implying that he is, he is actively thinking, like, I should just get the fuck out of here. <laughs> like, I should just leave these people and go. That's my best shot at this point. 
Yeah, well, there's this amazing sort of one-two punch at Billy early in the film that I think showcases how Comanche Todd really feels about him. And that's when in the middle of the night, after Comanche Todd had been starved and beaten by the sheriff, Billy shows up with a little treat. And Comanche Todd's like, oh, you got something for me? Probably hoping it was like a sandwich or, you know, something that he could really, you know, get some sustenance on. And Billy opens up the rag and he's like, I brought you some cookies. (laughs) And he starts feeding Comanche Todd a cookie. He's like cinnamon raisin or something like that, like giving him (laughs) a nice little midnight snack. And then later after Billy kind of runs off and... Comanche Todd is talking to Jenny. They start having a conversation about Billy and his virtues. And that's when Comanche Todd says, yeah, got a lot of devil in him. A real fine boy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's his way of saying, I am very uncomfortable by this this kid. I I am deeply troubled by this boy. Yeah. (laughs) One thing that's nice about the structure of The Last Wagon is that you know, you, you get Widmark all tied up and then you're just like, God, you know, we gotta we gotta free Widmark, you know? We gotta free this guy. He's our he's our A-list star. And when he does get freed from the wheel, he still has his his shackles on his hands, and he's whipping people with those chains oh, like yeah. throughout the movie, yeah. both when he's connected and when he isn't connected. Yeah. Because of course the racist Valinda is holding the key, you know, the whole time in secret. But I digress. Yeah, dude. The, Widmark's the, chain. The excitement you know? in his eyes when, when like, he kind of cuts the chain but stills the shackle on and kind of, like, whips it on the ground and realizes what he can do with that. Like, he's got, like, a fucking smile on his face. He's like, this is going to be useful. And, indeed, it will be useful at various points in the film. Yeah, there is, like, a really notable duel with, with an Apache man that arrives two. after, you know, well, two of two. them. But, like, the, the duel itself specifically, just, like, the knife fight with the Apache who's holding the knife and, and his shield. And it almost feels like a gladiator battle. Oh, yeah. yeah. Dude, it rocks. I mean, like, I was, you know, and I'd seen some other, like, Dave's films before. I mean, obviously, like, I love 310 to Yuma. um, But I, I have to be honest, I was a little, like... I, I kept going, whoa, at various points in this movie with how brutal the violence was for 1956. I mean, even like in the beginning when he stabs Timothy Carey, like they're pretty much like showing him like gutting Timothy Carey on the on the side of this hill. And then, yes, the the fight with those two Apaches was was like grounded and, and horrible, awful. I mean, it wasn't exciting. I mean, it was what he wanted it to be, which was like a fight for your life. It was ugly, it was gross, and and it was nasty. And and not this sense of of you know kind of like a heroic moment, but but again, a sort of like just desperate thing he had to do. And he he didn't want to. I mean, I, again, that's what I think I really just loved about this movie is like when Comanche Todd gets like put in these situations, he's kind of like, God damn it. Like, I don't want to do this, but now I have to. You idiots have put me in this position with these two Apache by by, you know, 
Nick Adams goofball firing off the gun in the air. Like, now I have mm-hmm. to kill these two. I think that's what he says. Like, take it on two now rather than 200 later. Stupid square headed fuckers. Like, look what I got to do, you morons. Yeah. And we haven't even brought up that other really shocking moment of violence early in the film when Comanche Todd, still strung up on that wheel, oh, yeah. does like a battle axe throw and kills the sheriff that was depriving him of food and water. That sheriff meets his end by taking an axe straight to the face. Yeah. And the, 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 the efficiency and the brutality of how quickly that happens is it's a shocking moment. And again, to to compound that moment is Billy's reaction to it, which is Gosh, I guess Comanches are about the best battle axe throwers there are. It's like like a clinical reaction to what would have probably like made me throw up if I actually saw it take place. Yeah, it would probably be absolutely horrifying. But again, (laughs) I think that just like contributes towards Billy being this freak that is deeply obsessed with Native American culture through like the little bits of media that he's been reading. He he exhibits like all the characteristics that have been laid out, you know, by psychologists and like the warning signs for like psychopathic behavior, right? Like (laughs) he even wants to like, you know, kill animals. He wants to get on the 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 trail with him. And and yeah, Mm -hmm. he is he is like opportunistically taking advantage of every opportunity to, to yeah, experience violence and bloodshed. I think one of the main departure points of our two films this week then is, you know, the as we've been talking about Clint's uh, anti-heroic performance in The Gauntlet in The Last Wagon, you know, Comanche Todd really is the the greatest man of all time. Oh, yeah. Uh, And that becomes more and more evident, you know, as Widmark is freed from his chains and then uh, reluctantly leading this clueless group of of fools. He's just the the greatest. I mean, he's he's a fucking warrior. He's intelligent, you know. Handsome, good with the ladies. He's Richard Widmark, you know. (laughs) Uh, And yeah, it, it does have, like, yeah, I like, you know, Comanche Todd is is the Superman of the wilderness, essentially, because obviously the implication is like, if he didn't have any of these people, like, he'd be fine, obviously. Like, alone? No problem. And that's it. I mean, like, I guess in that regard, it's it's the ultimate journey of, of like, Todd and our relationship is to... You know, at first we're, we're sort of shocked by the savagery, but then we're supposed to come to understand that, like, you know, for, for Dave's, the, the, the ideal hero is someone who is capable of extreme violence, but also, like, concern for others. And I think that climaxes in that, that final um, courtroom scene that we get you know it's funny we were talking about like the gauntlet how it's got all these kind of little things you know it's like it's an action movie it's a road film it's a romantic screwball comedy it's a it's a slapstick surrealist buster keaton-esque you know uh dive into cops this movie has got like you know it's got like action it's got a little bit of a war film it's got romance and then we also get courtroom drama in its in its uh true climax where where the philosophies of 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 america are 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 weighed against 
the the philosophies of the Comanche of the indigenous. Yeah, because after all, uh, Comanche Todd is wanted for a quadruple homicide, uh, and that's something <laughs> which he that's, readily admits to, yeah, proudly admits to in the courtroom. Yeah, uh, but that's you know dogging him the whole movie, and they have this encounter, you know, with these soldiers who are like, oh well, hey, we gotta turn you in, buddy. You know, even after he saves everyone's lives. Which again, you want to talk about like the the buffoon cops of the gauntlet the the fucking cavalry guys i was laughing at like they're looking for comanche todd and then suddenly out of the wilderness pops up richard widmark in his buckskins you know and a knife (laughs) and looking really raw and then sunbaked and leathery and and he's like I'm Phil Putnam. I'm just, I'm part of this wagon train. And they're like, all right. And then he's got a bow and arrow, you know, and he's like throwing axes and shit. And, and they're just <laughs> buying the fact that he's Phil Putnam from, from back East, you know, like they go along with it only until it's revealed that he kept a little trophy from his killing of the sheriff where he held onto the badge. And that is the thing that triggers the, like the, the, the greenhorn <laughs> Lieutenant was like, wait a minute, you're fucking Comanche Todd. I knew it all along. And it's like, no, you didn't, you fucking morons. Like, what gave it away, really? Oh, God, man, hilarious. (laughs) Unbelievable, those guys. But yeah, those soldiers do bring Comanche Todd in and the film climaxes. Well, of course, with this big battle, that's pretty impressive. But also, really, that court scene is really striking and something I've been thinking about a lot since watching it because it does adhere to one of the common tropes of a film like this where, you know, justice is served because of how poetic and beautiful the philosophical monologue is uh, (laughs) during the courtroom trial, you know? Um, It honestly kind of reminded me of the courtroom scene in The White Squall, right? Where there's this impassioned plea and then there's some other people in the crowd that are like, no, he's a good man. Like, you have to forget about all the other things and we have to treat law differently here. But one thing I hadn't remembered having seen this film before was that the man presiding over the trial is General Howard. Oh, yeah. He's part of the Dave's universe. Yeah, that's a really charged um, placement of a historical figure here because at this point, that is contemporaneous to 1873. Howard was at that point based in Arizona. That's when he was doing the primary negotiations between Cochise, right? He was like leading the charge with the Apache campaign in Arizona at the time. But he's just like a really conflicted and interesting figure in history, right? Because General Howard was someone who was responsible for a lot of initiatives for black Americans by Abraham Lincoln doing like extremely noble things and then was sort of set up for failure by the American government. And that was something that sort of tarnished his career. But he's also someone that was like the primary campaign leader on a lot of the American Indian wars, especially with like the Nez Perce as he chased Chief Joseph throughout the various like states in the Northwest. And I thought it was interesting having him be someone that was presiding over that final determination and him extolling his own idea of the law and the white man's law and what he values there. I mean, he's like also a striking figure to depict because he had one arm, you know? (laughs) So you've got like this one-armed man leading the jury and someone trying to both pathologically 
assess the situation while also sticking with his military code, which seems like that was the big contradiction of General Howard throughout history, just like an odd man of his time who did actually do really noble things, but also, again, led terrible campaigns during the Indian Wars. Just someone, just like, how does a man kind of untangle themselves from that situation when they exist at that that moment in history and has that, like, station professionally? Mm -hmm. Um, So I was really struck seeing this again and thinking like, wow, Howard's at the end here, you know, the one who like makes the final determination on Comanche Todd's like safety and future by basically marrying Comanche Todd <laughs> yeah. both on the spot. to Jenny and yeah. Billy. Yeah. <laughs> like, by the like, power vested in me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, like, yeah, first of all, it's like totally the most like, like epic logical ownage, you know, sort of like speechifying, which, you know, many great points made and none greater than when Widmark says to him, You're a white man. You are bound by the white man's law. There was no white man's law for hundreds of miles. And even if there was, you show me a white man jury in this land that had hanged four white men for killing an Indian squad, two Comanche boys. Yeah. And then he goes, in a country where they give out medals for killing Indians, like the ones on your vest, you know, he calls him out directly. And that just pisses off Howard. Uh, It really isn't until, you know, the the sort of corny uh, dolly shot. He uh, saved my life. Yeah, they dolly by every character's face and they're all like he taught me how to live you know except for scumbag nick adams who only offers his you know uh assent in that situation through his silence you know he won't we want him to live he just kind of nods maybe he just gives him a look like i i could care either way at this point you know but yeah, I think that's, you know, a troubling thing, of course, that a lot of like scholars bring up about even these sort of like liberal progressive Westerns of the 50s. They still in the end are making the assumption that like he will assimilate into white society. Right. Uh, so mm-hmm. he, you know, rides off into the sunset with Jenny and Billy under the assumption that, like, yes, that in white society. Although he, he made claims otherwise earlier, I think it's open to interpretation, uh, but that's often how these things go. It's like, why can't we all just get along and we'll welcome you into our society? Yeah. You know, that kind of kind of thing that uh, very exactly much happened. exactly 20 yeah. years later, Clint would, would address even that uh, in the outlaw Josie Wales, when Chief Dan George talks about the fate of the, quote, civilized tribe that he was a part of, and right. what they ended up getting through that whole deal, right? Like 20 years later, it's a very different, it's a different way of looking back on that, that, uh, that compromise that was sort of forced on many of the indigenous people in in the country. And then I guess true to form for Clint in their conclusion, right? It's a it's a much less idealistic way of of bringing all of this uh to its thunderous conclusion. And it's the thing that I think this movie is most known for. You know, when yes. people who have seen it think back on it, they think of this moment, and for anyone who hasn't seen it, boy, it will be the moment that you most uh quickly remember, which is once they've arrived to Phoenix, uh, and, and, and Clint sort of now knows the score. The knows fix is that, in. Yes. That Blake Locke is a part of this, that he is not intended to actually get this witness 
to the courthouse, his solution is to create a a, a sort of armor-plated bus where he, he builds this this kind of contraption, these these thick steel plates that he can hide behind while driving a, a city bus directly to the courthouse. But he, of course, to prove his point, reveals the route. He wants them to know the exact route he's going to take through downtown Phoenix, at which point the army of police are, are stationed along this route and they unload thousands of rounds of, well, blank ammunition, but in the movie, bullets into this bus as it slowly <laughs> traverses those city streets. They create uh, an impassable barrier, a gauntlet, if you will. <laughs> oh, they do. I, I do want to quickly mention, though, because I was thinking about, right, like, The Last Wagon, what's the legacy of this? It's funny, then, that one of the natural endpoints is when Clint goes and gets the bus in the town of Superior, Arizona. That is on the main drag in Superior, Arizona. But he uh, he has to talk to someone who's the proprietor of Osborne's Apache shop, right? Here's the, the disgusting endpoint of the American Indian Wars. One of them in America is the way it's all just been commodified at these little shops throughout Arizona especially. And it's something oh, you yeah. still see to this day, right? Trade posts. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but that is where he picks up the bus. Yes, and it really is like surreal. I mean, there are so many cops. I mean, one thing that that's always struck me is there's all these cutaways to, you know, like cops on rooftops and cops hanging out of windows. And they look like shots from Antonioni movies, but with like cops in them. Yeah. And, and, and white riot helmets. <laughs> yeah. It just adds this whole amazing touch to like the spatial work they're doing with the editing here of them inside the bus and all these kind of like baroque angles you wouldn't normally associate with Eastwood and then just yeah a million rounds of ammunition yeah, going storm into of thing. steel you know just beating down on that bus I mean it's it is and again it's like the cops are intentionally depicted as just these yes these like robots that you know that just shoot guns they're lined up on every single side of this bus so they're basically all shooting at each other as yeah. well. I mean, yeah. it is the worst, <laughs> the worst way to stage an ambush. If you've ever seen Ronin, there's a great scene where Robert De Niro points that out to to Sean Bean, who's planning an ambush. You got shooters on both sides. Shooters kill each other. <laughs> what color was the the boathouse at Hereford? You know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and and I what I also found interesting was you know at the very end of the film there's a there's a specific disclaimer about the depiction of police officers in this film and it's I I don't think I've ever seen that disclaimer in any film before it, I'm paraphrasing it but it says something like the depiction of law enforcement practices in this film are not necessarily related to any actual practices of of law enforcement agencies in this country like wow. so i guess they were pressured on a certain level or compelled to include that because a lot of the again clint right a lot of the cops in phoenix were actual police officers they were he basically just got the police force of phoenix and was like here you go here's some blank firing rifles line up and just shoot at this bus or whatever but i'm sure that yeah. they were like well hey come on you know we're not all bad you know like can you can you let people know this and so yes they put a disclaimer at the end of the film saying real cops don't do this lol yeah whereas in the movie itself the 
commissioner of police who's also the uh, villainous, uh, sick, sicko rapist at the heart of this mob trial says, and I quote, they're cops. The bastards are paid to shoot, not think. Exactly. And that comes directly from the man giving all of them orders, exactly. right? And he directs them to shoot. And boy, do they shoot. Oh, yes. And that's what I was wondering about, too, because the ending is so mysterious in certain respects, because after they completely eviscerate this bus and it finally comes to a stop on the tops of these steps that lead into the, um, what is that, just city like the hall. city hall building? Once the bus has come to a complete stop and Clint drags himself out of there with his terrible leg wound and he's probably got eyeballs full of glass, you know, because of the amount of rounds that are being shot through that windshield, none of the cops open fire on him and Sandra as they climb out. It's a moment I've always loved because I think it's really stylish and it shows the like heightened sense of reality here. It's impossible to say exactly what's happening, why they don't just kill him the moment he comes out. But this time around, I was trying to remember, was the official order to just open fire on the bus and they were adhering so strongly to their order that they've completed the job. They fired on the bus and got it to stop. Their order was not to just kill Clint Eastwood outright. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's how I read it because, you know, in the ensuing chaos, like the commish runs down the villain of the movie and Sandra Locke blows him away (laughs) and all the cops are just frozen in the background. It really is this like surreal whole sequence from the moment they get off the bus. All of these officers are just frozen. Yeah. And that's why it's so great that they're real (laughs) Phoenix police officers, because that also explains that alien quality to it, because they're not reacting with any emotion. Yes. They just were like, we're here to be extras in a Clint Eastwood movie, and he told us to stand here for this scene. (laughs) We were hired to shoot at this bus. You know, yeah, it's totally. it's, dude, it's it's Badiou again. It's the paradox of cinema. It's it's total artifice and total reality, like yeah. laid bare at the same exact moment. It's amazing. Yeah, but I also read it as just like they're. I think another way of reading it is that they're just amazed. Yeah, you know, just, they they're think like Clint Eastwood is super cool. He's wearing his white tee, which yeah. would from yeah. then on be one of his trademarks. You oh know? yeah, it's like damn, like we gave it everything we had. Like at this point, it's like all right, man, like you've earned it. Like you've earned this shit from I guess one cop to another. Like go for it, man. And then because it's a Clint film, you know, they just walk away with the bus smoldering. Arm in arm with jazz playing as the credits roll. That Malpaso feeling, dude. (laughs) There's a ton of jazz in this movie, yeah. Yeah, the jazz that plays over all of those chase sequences is a really nice nice bit of flavor. I was thinking that the ending this time around really felt like the ending of a Hong Kong action movie where everything just gets wrapped up like immediately. You know, we're never considering the repercussions of the insanity that was just on display in the climax. We just have to cut this off, let the credits play, and still see the smoke from everything that had just gone down. Well, again, and I think also a, a, a nod or a reflection on, like, the ending of a lot of the Dirty Harry movies. Because those Dirty Harry movies end in a very similar kind of downbeat way. You know, even going back to the first one where he just, you know, he blows away Scorpio and then throws his badge down and just walks off. Uh, implying that, of course, he's done with the Force, and then you know there'll be five more movies or whatever, and he's back. But but a lot of the Dirty Harry movies kind of end in a in a in a in a almost like inverted way, where he has 
given his sense of justice, the, the finality of the act, and then and then moved on. But here, we're just sort of left with, a, I think, a much more like empty feeling, uh, even as the, the villains are, are, quote, you know, brought to, to justice. It sort of reminds me of Yojimbo and, and Fistful, where it's sort of like he's laid waste to the town and damned it all to hell, and then he just walks off, yeah. you know? I mean, Fuck like, yeah. that's that. That's 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 absolutely that. I mean, there's there's no other way uh, to. I think doesn't have it. to go to court like Comanche Todd. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I always love like thinking of those moments too of just like man, I wish. I, I know we don't need it, but it would have been great to have just one last shot of them entering that fucking courtroom, looking the way that they did, and being like, you know, right. she's here to testify. <laughs> it's like, boy, wow. <laughs> Yeah, that would have been really nice. You know, I guess one thing I would like to cap some of this off with, too, is something I kind of forgot to mention more broadly that connects these two films is just the fact that both of these filmmakers, and we've hinted at this throughout, are very much guided by the locations that they shoot in. You know, one of the things I love about Delmer Dave's Westerns is that they do really seem to be responding to the landscape. Like he's got Jubal, which is shot in Wyoming near the the Tetons, and it really distinguishes itself by feeling like something that is set in Wyoming at this, you know, at this ranch that doesn't have a lot around it, you know, and that suffocation and that kind of paranoia. And then he also did The Hanging Tree, which is shot up in Washington. And that's like one of the great Pacific Northwesterns, you know, right next to something like Canyon Passage. He was obsessed with shooting in real landscapes. And that's something Clint has done throughout his career in his depiction of trying to capture something about America, whatever it may be. I mean, Clint has shot so many films in Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, Wyoming, Montana. His stuff goes all over. I I once mapped it out. I did like a little route after watching a ton of Clint Eastwood films. Like, could you take a road trip? Like the Wang Bing map? (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Like, where was he? You know, where have all these things been? And these are both filmmakers that love real locations and their films don't have a stiffness from sets. You know, something that would have befitted much more obviously Delmer Dave's shooting in a classic Hollywood period where sets would have been a lot more traditional. Well, I learned that Dave's himself thought of his Westerns. I think he did eight of them. He saw them as like a a single project that he called a composite of the West. So he never wanted to repeat Mm. locations or even necessarily certain archetypes and characters. He was aiming to create this kind of, I guess, mosaic or composite, this tapestry of the West. And, you know, part of this is because he comes from frontiers people. Uh, His grandfather was an Irish immigrant who fought in the Civil War and then worked uh, as a wagon master and as a Pony Express rider from, I think, like Colorado to to Arizona or something like that. And so he, he, like, that's part of his family. He, like, grew up in San Francisco, big time, like, you know, California, Southwest guy. And so it all makes sense. You know, he was obsessed with uh, the West as like a link to his own family and, and that history. And obviously he had great respect for, for the indigenous people. However, clumsily it comes across in the context of a 1956 Hollywood film. Well, uh, thanks for providing us this opportunity, Marsh, to... To return to the lands of the Red Rocks, 
I love Arizona and it was great to revisit it. I had seen both of these films this week, of course, but it was it was so lovely to to see these unique portrayals of the the uh, the state itself. Um, when you think about Arizona, though, I mean, there's, there's countless movies Ugh. that have been shot there. Uh, but are there any that like really stick out in your memory? Well, thank you both very much. You know, uh, you made my Arizona dream come true. Uh, had a blast. And yeah, a million, you know, I was trying to think of uh, non-Western examples. I mean, even these filmmakers we had on this episode, uh, you could talk about Josie Wales or 310 to Yuma or Broken Arrow, like both of these directors worked in Arizona a ton, and I love all that stuff, but uh, trying to think of non-Westerns, and, you know, I know Andy's a big fan of this one, uh, one of the great 70s films, Electra Glide in Blue, uh, with Robert Blake as the highway patrolman who gets into... Uh, a little bit of trouble investigating his a own murder. clash with idealism. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. One of the great bummer 70s movies directed by James William Garcia, known as uh, mostly the sort of like manager producer of Chicago. The band. DePaul band. Yeah, the DePaul band, the <laughs> Chicago Transit <laughs> Authority. Um, and I also want to shout out Starman. John oh, yeah. Carpenter's foray into mm. Arizona as the film shifts, I believe, from Wisconsin to the deserts of, of Arizona as the star man, Jeff Bridges, goes on his wild journey. And uh, I know Carpenter got to fly around uh, in a helicopter uh, in that one in Arizona and uh, got his license after that. He was so inspired, you know? Uh just as we saw a lot of good helicopter stuff in the gauntlet as well. Have you both seen Arizona Dream? Mm, no. Mm -mm. It's a really... Oh, actually, that's funny. I remembered, Marsh, we tried to see yes. it at Doc Films. It was supposed to be a 35-millimeter projection, and they we were waiting in the lobby for like 15 minutes, and by the time they finally let everyone in, they're like, okay, well, like we got the tech issue resolved, and then like under their breath, they mentioned, we're going to be screening the film off of iTunes. <laughs> and we were, we were like, no, 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 yeah. no, no, give us everybody back. Come all the way here. down to the south side to watch uh, Kustaritza on a... On a laptop. A fucking laptop, you know? <laughs> No, thank you. Donnie Jeb. I did see that movie, and it was funny because it was the first thing that popped into my head. Not as a film I wanted to rewatch, but there is something about it that captures the oddness of Arizona. Um, and maybe that's because it's a non-American filmmaker shooting such a strange and alien landscape, you know? But um, that film's got Jerry Lewis as a used car dealer. And to me, when I think Arizona, I think about Jerry Lewis selling those cars <laughs> in Arizona Dream. <laughs> and used cars, I believe, is an Arizona yes. film as well. Very nearly picked it for my father. He would have been very excited. Yeah, one day. Well, uh, it was my topic this week, but next week, it's Andy's topic. Yeah. So my topic is kind of a... Uh... Uh, on a certain level, like a mental conciliatory um, pick for me, um, because the other film that I was tempted to bring for this week was Billy Jack. That was my original choice. And, uh, you know, partly because I find it to be uh, such a bizarre 
film made by a truly bizarre and fascinating individual, Tom Laughlin. Uh, and if you think about Billy Jack, uh, it's, it is the kind of film that fits into a certain category I like to call Vanity Project, uh, which is a movie that is like almost entirely conceived by one person. The, in Billy Jack, Tom Laughlin is the producer, writer, star, director, and he was ultimately the distributor of the film when he got into battles with AIP over its release. So I was like, man, I, you know, Billy Jack, it's just so fun to like, look at that and talk about that as an angle. So I was like, well, if we're not doing Billy Jack this week, uh, maybe we can scratch that itch that I now have to, to look at a, a vanity project. And this is a little bit different than, than something like, you know, Clint in, uh, uh, the Gauntlet, even right. I mean, Clint is certainly an auteur, but Clint is not a one-man band. So I'm looking for a vanity project. Bring me a movie that is almost entirely conceived by a certain individual as a showcase for just how great, awesome, and brilliant they are. And whether it is a great, awesome, or brilliant film, I'll leave that up to to you and, and the listeners next week. So let's uh, let's get vain. It's going to be hard to top Yahoo Serious, but hopefully we can find someone. <laughs> <laughs> As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com Thanks everyone. Hey come on talk to me. I, I want to know what it's like being a horse. Actually I always thought it was rather like being a cop. You did? <laughs> yeah. Not unlike being on the take at two dozen bars in downtown Vegas. Taking money from some politician each time you Peel his drunken kid's Cadillac off the telephone pole. Strong-arming the Chicanos in the barrio on Saturday night. Busting kids for smoking grass, then taking a kickback from the heroin dealers. Or those occasions when you do bust a busher and skim the hall when you've made the collar. So what you skim to your dope addict buddies on the porch. <laughs> She's your own all our chicks, ain't she? As I see it, the only difference between you and me is that when I quit work, I take a long, hot bath, and I'm as clean as the day I was born. But a cop, especially a flunky like you, when the sheriff whistles, you squat. And what he does to you rot your brain. No amount of water on earth can get you clean again. You want to sit there and take that kind of crap? You were the one who wanted to talk. I know you don't like women like me. We're a bit aggressive. You're frightened. But that's only because you've got filth in your brain, and I'm afraid the only way you'll ever clean it out is to put a bullet through it.